0: for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meet pod. Bye. Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner Podcast where we go through the canon of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! <laughs> what up, what up, Meepsters? This week we have a special anniversary episode of one of the select few bands on Roadrunner to achieve a platinum-selling album, Theory of a Dead Man." Back in 2011, when they were still of a dead man, they released an album called The Truth Is, hot off the heels of their 2008 record Scars and Souvenirs, which had sold over a million copies. This was fueled by the success of their massive hit single, Bad Girlfriend. Today we're talking to lead singer Tyler Connolly of Theory, but before that, we speak with the bad girlfriend herself. Chrissy Fox of Nehigh Fox fame helped pen the chart-topping song not only by helping write it, but by actually being the aforementioned bad girlfriend. But her writing credit for Theory continued on with this album. She gives us the Foxtrot on the whole process. Did you do songwriting before Theory of a Dead Man? Like were you writing songs for other
1: bands? You know, yeah, I I started songwriting before that, but um there like the record with, you know, Scars and Souvenirs was my first major release where I had hit songs and you know, I I dabbled but I was an actress for since I was a kid and so that was my main thing at that point. And then when the songwriting thing really started taking off, I took a break, short break from that just to like because I was getting overwhelmed with songwriting and different stuff. So I, uh, I started just focusing on that. And then I started realizing like, Oh, you can actually do a little bit of everything. You just got to have some balance. And I'm at a point now, which I'm lucky that I can just work with bands that I really like, like theory. I I feel like I'm just like their secret little fifth member. I'm just like, you know, I, I've, at this point, I've written on every record and, you know, we always, we I don't know we're kind of an extension of each other. Tyler and I think so like now I feel like it's so easy. We we write a song in an afternoon. So um so yeah, that's something like I'll always I'll always want to work with them. This record was crazy because it was right when we were going through our divorce and I feel like when we were writing these songs it was the the reason that we stayed such great friends because we put all the bullshit aside of, you know, getting divorced from anyone is not easy. And we just rewrote these songs. So yeah, maybe there was some underlying like things and stories. And I, but I feel like we both kind of like worked through something while writing and we wrote other songs um, for this record. that didn't end up on the record. So we spent a lot of time working on it at that point so yeah it was kind of a crazy thing
0: but like the song the truth is is very mean
1: <laughs> and yeah. i don't even know who i'm
0: supposed to be rooting for is it the person <laughs> that's singing or the person he's saying is you know being mean to him it's uh it's very abrasive
1: yeah that song i that was like the song of the record that i i had the idea um like the title i was like like what if we wrote a song where it's like you're turning it around on somebody and you're like, oh yeah, the truth is well, I lied to you too. You're a lot, you know, and, and yeah, I, I mean, obviously a lot of the stuff that we say isn't necessarily specific to us, but we definitely can pull from a lot of things. And we often, um, if it's not directly about him and I, it's usually about someone we know or, you know, someone that we maybe don't like. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of honesty in all the songs and usually they all have a meaning.
0: It almost reminded me of, you know, how like the Pina Colada song is famously about yeah. like two people cheating on each other and yeah. they actually deserve each other in the end. That's kind of what it reminded me of. It's like, well, you both seem like terrible people in this song, so maybe you should just kind of link up.
1: Yeah, we really we definitely have done that in the past. And, you know, theory has been kind of known for having some, you know, hateful songs and some tongue in cheek fuck over the girl songs. Um but yeah, I feel like as as he's gotten older and and maybe, yeah, maybe we've gotten out of this, it's kind of shifted. It's not quite as like misogynistic now and just like a little more like sweet. You know, there's definitely a lot of songs I've done that I don't feel this way, but I don't feel like Bad Girlfriend is that way. I feel like Bad Girlfriend is, kind, is empowering. I'm, and I think that's why that song works so well is because he's calling out a girl for being wild, but he's like totally in love with her. And that song it was so funny when we wrote that, we had this, he had this like idea and I'm like, well, who's the craziest girl, you know? He's like, you and like, Let's write a story about when we met. And it's so a bad girl. I am about the bad girlfriend. Like it's about me. Um, and back in the day I was like underage going to bars and, and yeah, I was a wild child. So I felt, I always felt pretty empowered by that song. And I, I think other women really like it. Like oh, I want to be the bad, bad girlfriend. So, Yeah, I think um, it's just the way you twist it and like the way you say it, you know?
0: Yeah, that one, the title's almost kind of misleading too because it's not like Bad Girlfriend, like the truth is, is Bad Girlfriend. It's like Bad Girlfriend, like you're like a badass kind of versus like- Yeah, exactly. The song's not really about like you being bad to the
1: uh,
0: protagonist of the story.
1: He's almost just like, she's so wild, I can't even keep up with her, but it's cool because she's going to come home with me, come home to me at the end of the night. So it's, you know, it's kind of a sweet song.
0: And also prophetic because you did become the future ex-Miss Connolly.
1: I know. Who would have known? That was pretty funny, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what is the... So what? that's what the the process is. He'll come to you with an idea and then you kind of flesh out the lyrics of the song or are you there through the whole process of the production or how does that work?
1: Um, it's different a lot. Um, a lot of times... I mean, sometimes he'll be like, I have this idea, but then there's instances like the truth is or there was a song on one of his last records, um, Living my life, like a country song I had. And, and so sometimes it'll be me. Sometimes it'll, a lot of times he'll be like, Oh, I have this like little line or idea. And then we'll, we usually work through it on piano or guitar. Um, and then, but then sometimes honestly we'll just get in a room and we we'll are like, so what do you want to write about? And we'll just kind of talk about what's going on and, um, there's a song actually on their new record called quicksand and we had our, like one of our best our two best friends they adopted um, a little girl who was going through the foster system um, and so that song randomly I was babysitting her that day and I brought her over to his house and she's like a little baby and so the song literally got written about her while she was so it, a lot of it is um, on the spot or sometimes like a, an idea or even a concept and then Often with theory, I usually will sit with Tyler and we'll like go through and um, work through some production stuff. And um, it really depends on his process for each record because it changes. All. And there's there's been records where he's like, I just only want to demo things acoustically. That's it. And then when I go in the studio, we'll you know we'll flush it out. But um, this last one we did a lot. We sat and did a lot of production ideas. And the truth is that record. Yeah. A lot of it, we just sat, we would record like full demos. I like to be involved. Um, I like to be there and, you know, because his band can't be, um, a lot of times, cause everyone lives far away. You, a lot of times we'll do that and then he'll send stuff to his band and then yeah, Joe will play some drums and do his own thing or, and Dean and Dave will do their thing. And everyone's like, really open and I think it's just like a really cool creative process at this point like everybody trusts each other and um and you know between working with Howard and Martin they're both very you know very great producers that have great ideas too that you can you can trust when they come up with something that they're you know they're not going to ruin your song
0: (laughs) right
1: right it's nice because I've certainly been on the other side with people where I'm like oh god what are they going to (laughs) do like what is it going to sound like when it's done
0: on the most recent album, the uh, the single they had, History of Violence, I understand that, like, it was a completely different song before you heard it. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it was a totally different vibe. He had an idea for it, and he had the title. And then we really, like, talked through it, and it, it became a little bit more of a, like, a real story that you follow about a person, like, going through in each stage, you know, obviously ending up in prison. And we realized, like, you know, that's, I felt like that's where that song needed to go. Like we would sit at the piano and he'd play stuff and we'd be like, and I'd be like typing lyrics. Like, what about this? No, try to sing this in here. And, and so we really worked through that one. And it became, I think something really special that neither one of us really knew going in, how that song was going to be. I liked what he was doing, but it was a very different song. He had kind of a different chorus idea and, and we just totally, kind of turned it on his head. You were talking about the bonus tracks on the truth is we did this song called, does it really matter? And uh, originally that song, it was, it was an older song and it was about like, for me, the lyrics, a girl that I knew I grew up and went to school with and she died in ninth grade. So that was kind of a more personal song that we talked about that idea. And then we really talked about how she didn't have the easiest time in school. And she was, you know, people were kind of shitty to her. Um, she had had a stroke when she was younger. And she was so she, she limped a little bit. And I just remember how shitty kids were. And I was so grateful. I was never shitty to her. And I and I remember the day that I found out she passed away. And it was just like, so sad. And so we'd kind of talked a lot about that. And then just how like a lot of kids go through a lot of shit in school, and whether it's suicide, or, you know, I feel like that song became really relatable, because but I felt like it was really important and something, you know, worth mentioning. And I think that that song's really special every time I hear it I still think about her and so it's it's kind of a cool story and obviously we um elaborated on the song to include some other some other things that you know kids will go through but yeah it was a it was it was a crazy time so yeah I think that that song was really special and I I almost wish it wasn't just a bonus track
0: the truth is also has a collaboration with Scott Stevens who you worked with with Hailstorm right
1: yeah yeah. So
0: is this how you met him or did you know him before this?
1: No, I knew him before. Scott and I have worked a lot together. Um, he's worked with me. We worked on a pop song together. Um, obviously we did. I miss the misery together. Um, and we've worked on a lot of different stuff with different artists. I think we worked on a song for Orianti together and oh wow! Um, yeah, we I've known Scott for a really long time.
0: It's so interesting because, you know, um, the Pop Evil and Hailstorm song, they kind of have a similar vibe. And I guess some of the theory songs are a little bit more hard rocking, definitely not the newer ones. But then Knee High Fox is just like not even, like you wouldn't know that the same human being is involved yeah. with it. So is that more the kind of music that you actually like listening to or it's just what you like performing?
1: I realized like, doing a lot of these um writing sessions i felt like i needed an outlet and just having something because you you can sometimes when you're writing for other bands you get a little confined to what they're comfortable saying what you know what they want to put out there you're basically when especially writing lyrics you're writing something someone else is saying and expressing of themselves. So when I started high Fox, I was like, I just want to be able to do whatever I feel like doing. Like I want to do something, yeah, that I really like. And I really like um, horror films and I really like a lot of, um, I listen to a lot of different types of music, but I listen to a lot of pop. I love like Lana Del Rey and I love, I mean, I like a little bit of everything, but um, I just wanted to incorporate feelings of different music all like intertwined I didn't want it to be you know pigeonholed as one specific genre Um, which probably in the end is it wasn't the best thing for commercial but for (laughs) me I feel like we kind of did everything the way I wanted to do it and we got to we make all of our own videos and you know my dream was to tour with Marilyn Manson we got to do that twice like you know what I mean we got we've got to do stuff that you know, I, I, I don't really have any complaints or any, you know, but yeah, I think that was just more just me not having any limits and not feeling like I couldn't say something or, oh, you know, if I have a day where I just want to say fuck 300 times, I can say it in my song and no one can stop me, you know, so.
0: I almost feel like Nehi Fox was just a little, uh, not to hype you up too much, but like ahead of your time, because nowadays, like Poppy or Dana Dentata or Slater not super different from what you were doing no. and now they're super popular also
1: no i think i think a lot of like label types were kind of freaked out of my band at the beginning because yeah it, it i feel like it's more comfortable to you know like oh i understand what this is this is like this and we have this and this this works and so it was kind of like whoa what what's going on over here but that was kind of the excitement to me about the band i was like oh we're we're doing something that People aren't super familiar or maybe comfortable with that that's exciting to me so yeah i mean maybe it's to the detriment but i i, I don't know but i think you're right i think i've noticed more now a lot of uh especially female bands that are starting to open up and even in the pop world it's it kind of there's knee-high fox elements like i see billy eilish videos and i'm like oh there you go like it's
0: right.
1: a horror video like that's really cool
0: well you have this kind of like girl super group going now with quinn right
1: yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah.
0: Well, what's going on with What's that kind of sound going to be like? Is it more rock driven? It seems like just based on who's in it, it would be.
1: It's a little more rock driven. It's like alt. Um, it, we started out really wanting to fit in the world of, you know, a rage against the machine or a my chem or just a little, but a little more aggressive and, um, you know, slightly less electronic than say high Fox and, um, you know, just, be able to be like four girls that play their instruments and just you know like Emma um our bass player who is in the band the Sick, Sick Puppies she always is like she want always wants me to like scream she like gets so into it she's like yeah I just every song you should just scream in it and you know I think she just she she really likes that and then our drummer is just really like she just wants to be in a rock band you know where she can just play like cool grooves and just and so yeah everybody kind of comes from a slightly different mentality but we all kind of really wanted the same type of sound we're looking to do something a little different and so it's been really cool we decided we were going to do a concept album so we've been really like taking our time fleshing out the songs and the story and we started working with rob cavallo which has been really cool and uh he's like you know he's obviously done some massive concept records so he really understands like the process and like, okay, go through now. What do we have? Okay, what does the story need? Where does it need to go? And kind of making you look at yourself. And yeah, yeah. So it's been cool. It's been a different thing. And I just really wish we could actually play together. <laughs> Alexia, our guitarist who's from the band I Set to Kill, she lives in Arizona. So she's driven in. We've done like a music video shoot and you know, we've done some hangs, but um, and she can anytime, but honestly, where we're at right now a lot of it she can do over Zoom. It's it's a different thing to have like all female energy, but I think it works because we've all been doing this and toured a lot and had a lot of experience. Whereas if I feel like it was a bunch of girls who were very green, it, I don't know. I feel like you might butt, butt heads a lot more, but everybody's really mellow and really cool. And then Spider and I have like a different dynamic when we write together, on um, like doing Dead as Punk and stuff because we both have really different approaches, but I, kind of, I like that too. I think that's just kind of exciting because he'll come up with something and I'm like, I would never say something that way <laughs> and vice versa. But it, it's cool. Like, it, you know what I mean? It's a cool back and forth because, yeah, the way we phrase things, it, it's very different.
0: Are there any songs on The Truth Is or in general with theory that you, when you hear back, you wish you would have done differently? Like, not necessarily regret, but like, you're like, oh man, I should have added this or taken this out.
1: I have this weird theory that your first instinct is usually correct. I'm not someone who will like go back and rewrite a song a thousand times and like try to Frankenstein it. I think that, and I, and Tyler's very similar that way. It's like, if you feel like you need to just throw it away and do something different or, you know, start over. Well, there is the line. uh, Well, there's a couple lines, um, but there is a one part where we say gun pack and bitch smacking," and in the song. And they were really pushing him fixing profanity. So he was kind of sneaky with Howard and they went back in and they changed the other thing, which was like some really small thing in the first verse that didn't matter. He just changed it to something basically the same and then didn't change it. And then it kind of somehow snuck by and ended up getting to stay in the song and and we didn't have to fight anymore. And we were like, so it felt so like, it was so exciting. <laughs> yes, like, cause it would have just been a huge battle and just, yeah, there's a lot of, um, places that you know like walmart's and stuff that will i mean targets that can have issues with selling records that have profanity but at the same time they do they do it so it's, it's just i think labels try to keep it to a minimum but i'm glad that Theory's kind of never really followed that like wake up call he says the word fuck and it's a ballad and but i feel like it's impactful and it it matters and you know so it's nice to have a band that you know if they feel like they need to say it, they will, and they'll fight for it.
0: But it's actually really interesting hearing things like that about the label and, and things of that nature, because, you know, usually I'm talking to these older bands from the nineties and yeah. they're also not selling nearly as many <laughs> records as Theory of a Dead Man did not, not to any discredit of their own. They're, you know, death metal bands and stuff like that. So their problems with the label are not <laughs> lyric <laughs> battles. You know, they're like, Hey, would it be cool if like we had a single or, um, Yeah,
1: totally.
0: <laughs> Whereas, and, and it's funny on both ends, though, because I would think that the label itself is like, yo, this band's selling millions of records. We should probably just let them do whatever they're doing because apparently it's working. So it's it's interesting to me, just also that era of Roadrunner that Theory was in because it's it starts off in one area and then it goes by the time that they're, you know, like Truth Is is out, they have all these other kind of more radio rock bands. And it's, it's funny that Roadrunner um, almost kind of like forgot that this is like a big deal for them. Like they should just be psyched yeah. in my mind. I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot.
1: I always am like, oh, like if labels push back. I'm like, they don't know. They don't know what it feels. Like. I don't know. I'm always, yeah, I'm always going to be on the artist side with any of that stuff, which once again could possibly be to my detriment. <laughs> <care>. <laughs> you know?
0: Didn't famously, the label didn't want to release Bad Girlfriend as a single, they right?
1: They hated Bad Girl." They didn't want it on the record. Like nobody, and, and like, I remember there's a few songs, "Bad Girlfriend," and and "Hate My Life," which are on the same record. We and uh, we wrote those songs and would like listen to them over and just like die laughing. We just thought they were just so funny and like so they just made us so happy. And I I love that the band stuck to their guns with with "Bad Girlfriend," and they were just like, "No, there's this is special." And I I remember a story that before it was ever a single the theory was playing it live and they're playing some festival and the, some of the label people came and literally like every person was singing every word to the song and it wasn't a single and they're like oh shit <laughs> so <laughs> thank god we fought for it you know and and yeah but you know it you don't write songs for like a 45 55 year old a r guy you write songs for you, you know the fans and it's It's just a different mentality. People who, you know, and I feel like also when when we did Bad Girlfriend, people weren't, rock bands weren't doing things like that. They weren't writing songs where people said stuff like dick magnet and like talking about making her grind her teeth and stuff. And just, you know, it was just like, whoa, what's happening? And you're singing about her thong. And it was just like, it was just very edgy at that time. Now it's like, yeah, whatever. Nothing Nothing really surprises anybody anymore.
0: Do you know who it is that's saying Tyler what were you thinking at the end of what was I thinking?
1: Okay, so when they were recording the that the whole album it was at Bay 7 um which is in it's Valley Village in LA. And uh there is this guy and you'd see him all over town like just like this I'm, I'm not sure if he was homeless or what but he would just he would just be playing banjo like crazy. Like I don't even think he could really play the banjo but and it would just be like you know people give him money and they used to see him all the time and then randomly someone had the idea like let's have him come in and play at the end of the song and so they just brought him in and he got paid like a union rate which is really good to play on a a major label record and yeah he was just playing and then they, they had him say it at the end and he had this great day and I still see that guy like Sometimes I'll be driving, I'm like, there he is! It's <laughs> I don't remember his name, but I think he's credited on the record.
0: From one DMX to another, that's the Magnet X to Dead Man Walking, which is a great transition. We go now to Mr. Tyler Connolly of Theory, who's going to endure me making even more wrestling references than ever before. Cue the SummerSlam 2011 theme. I live in South Carolina, so when I first heard nothing should come between us, I was like, oh, he talks about South Carolina. Only Hootie and the Blowfish, in theory of a dead man, are talking about South Carolina. So I guess my first question to you would be, when you when you got onto Roadrunner, were you aware or had any concern about the legacy of the label and that you guys were kind of like an anomaly for it at the time?
2: Not really. like we didn't do a lot of research. We, we just like there in you know, our guy, we knew Nickelback was there. That's how we met. Cause we met Ron Berman and, and a couple of the people from the label when we were still recording, they would come out in the, I think even before that, maybe we were even when we we're doing demos because we would be tracking like demos and then Nickelback would be doing some sort of promo or photo shoot or they, something. So we'd meet some people from there, the product manager. So, they're just really cool people. Like, we just really dug how down to earth they were. And, and, uh, us having no idea what record labels are about, we assumed there'd be people coming in suits and stuff. And they're just, they were just regular people. So, we dug that. So, when we were getting a chance to get signed, I think there was maybe five labels that are interested. We picked Roadrunner just because, uh, it's just something about the down to earth. Like, we knew that they were an indie. We liked that they were an indie. We liked that they had like this. Kind of almost this famous street team had this cred of really like selling records from the street kind of thing. We knew there was like, you know, we listened to Typo Negative, but other than that, we didn't really know it. it. was hard to really like Google search stuff back then, like 2000, 2001, I think. Yeah.
0: Well, because I was thinking about this the other day that when I was, when I first got that self titled album, and, you know, when Nickelback blew up that, I guess the year prior, it was such a backlash from like the the roadrunner culture, which kind of existed at the time. But I was thinking that you guys probably, you know, you're not, it's not like you're touring with Machine Head. So you probably aren't even aware that people are <laughs> upset that you're on this label.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, all, we met a lot of their street team people. Every city would have a street team person. And uh, same thing. It's super cool. Just a lot of them are kind of younger people that just would come to the show and have just a bunch of roadrunner stuff they would hand out at the door kind of thing and we would let them come backstage and hang out after the show and stuff but yeah we weren't aware i mean yeah i mean the label kind of ventured into something they hadn't really had success with a lot which was which was radio they just became they hired mike easterland who worked at another label doing pop he came in and ran radio for roadrunner and of course they had massive success in radio with nickelback and and uh, so they, they were really excited about us.
0: So the truth is, is a very interesting album for me, for you guys, because I almost feel like it was the second album all over again, because Scars and Souvenirs were so huge with Bad Girlfriend and all that, that it, did it feel like for you kind of, that you had to, you know, you had the first album, which had some pretty good success. And then Gasoline is the second one. Yeah. And you don't have any like, Uh, secondary writers, you kind of got do that more on your own, whereas the first one's done with Chad more or less, right? Yeah. And then Scars and Souvenirs, you have these huge singles and huge success with it, but you kind of bring in some more people to collaborate with. So going into the truth is, were you thinking like, oh, we need to stick with that formula? Or was the label like, oh, you know what, maybe we should try something new? You know, what was the approach going into it? Did it feel like a a sophomore effort to you all over again?
2: Yeah, it didn't really feel like we we discussed we do now nowadays we everything is approached differently than we did back then i think back then it was such a whirlwind we never really sat down and discussed what we wanted to do if we wanted to maybe push something venture out and do something different i kind of look at the truth is not to not to crap all of our own record but the truth the truth is i i felt it's almost like an extension of scars of souvenirs i felt like there, there was no like time to go home and really think about what I wanted to do as a songwriter. It was just like we toured, I think two and a half, some massive amount of time, and then we just went home and just like, I just almost like continued to write the same kind of material. So we didn't really think about. It. There was no real A and R conversation about like, well, what are we going to do here to, to push the band to the next level? We just were kind of like, I almost feel like that's it's our rattle and hum in a sense. If I listen to. <laughs> to Rattle and Hum it's almost like they it's almost like an extension of the Joshua Tree you know what I mean
0: well that's kind of what I was going to ask you about too because I feel like even at that time I mean especially now because you have such a large catalog but you know like your live shows you're not playing like a ton of songs off of the truth is other than the the, the interesting thing too about truth is is you have low life and bitch came back that are two really big songs for you but I also yeah. feel like overall the album you know, just from the outside looking in, it doesn't seem like something you guys are super pushing, even at in the live environment.
2: Yeah, I don't know why it, it's uh it's interesting. Yeah, the bitch came back, and low life still definitely staples. Uh, I mean, bitch came back, especially that was a that's a song. I, oddly, we want to try to stop playing just because just the content of the song. It's almost a little misogynistic and kind of like. Man, but it's just such a hit. I mean, over all the years, it's just continued to gain uh, momentum in a sense on streaming. And and every we play it at night, all everyone just goes nuts. So we're like, man, we'll be playing this song the rest of our lives, <laughs> whether we like it or not. But yeah, I don't know. There was something out of my head we used to play quite a bit. A lot of people like that song. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's uh, it's not like we dislike the record. We had a great time making it is um i think it, it almost got overshadowed a little bit by scar to souvenirs maybe um that's that record just kept going it just never stopped We weren't allowed to almost go away and come back with something new it just it uh, it was just like go back in the studio and, and and keep going it was a machine back then i think so uh, now like i said we have more time to especially now <laughs> to relax and go what is their next record going to be so
0: yeah because i'm well i know savages is kind of still along these lines but then the albums after that when you drop the dead man it's uh, a completely different sound almost yeah. more of like a like um imagine dragons or you know like the it's got a lot more electronics and programming than it seems like it's like guitar driven is that fair to say
2: yeah yeah we definitely i mean we went a completely different route to rx was a, a completely different animal in the sense we didn't know what that was going to do but um yeah different producer savages was you know we really wanted to go back and make such a heavy record we wanted to do a lot of guitar solos we let our, our joe our drummer you know we said just go nuts you know play all the drum fills you want let's do a lot of, you know double kick because i think it almost we felt a little stifled with some of the more crossover stuff i think from especially like scars we felt like we almost had a, this kid thing in us, to just almost this, to be cathartic in a sense almost like get back get back in the basement and just crank stuff up and we noticed ironically off of savages the biggest hit was angel it was a massive hit for us and it's like a, a pop song <laughs> so we were kind of like so what do our fans want to hear so we were kind of a little confused so we went into the uh as a wake-up call, I just kind of just clean, did a clean slate and just kind of wrote whatever I wanted to write. And, and then our a and guy, Pete, he brought in uh, a new producer and said, you should work with this guy, Martin. And he was a completely different style producer. He wasn't really aggressive at all. And that had a lot to do with the change of the sound, working with him, working overseas as well.
0: Yeah so I know that this is by no means the first album that you work with uh Howard Benson on with Truth is but when I was growing up Howard Benson was like new metal guy you know he had like Crazy Town and Papa Roach and Hooba Stink. so POD POD yeah, yeah yeah so you know I know he had success with more bands of your style later on but how did that relationship even start like what did you <laughs> what what POD song did you hear that you were like you know what I Howard's the guy for us
2: We didn't know we we were actually looking for Someone uh, for our, uh, our second record, it was Gasoline. So, I think I think uh, Ron Berman, our guy, was looking at a couple different producers. One of was, uh, I think, is it Bob Ez- Ezrin, who was a famous producer? He's done a lot of, I think, he did the Alice Cooper and stuff. Um, I can't remember what happened to that, but he brought up this guy, Howard Benson, who we never heard of at that time. We went and looked him up, like, we're like, dude, this guy's done some awesome stuff. I love that pod stuff. It sounds massive. He was working with Randy Staub as an engineer at that time. So uh, he flipped to Vancouver to watch us jam. And so we jammed in this crap, the worst. I mean, there's, I'm pretty sure there's homeless people living in this place. We were jamming. And I think we jammed two songs and he was just like, stop, stop. <laughs> it was so bad. But there was something we did that he liked because he was, he wanted to do the record. And uh, that's kind of how we, met and started working with Howard Benson. But yeah, we didn't really know much about him and he knew nothing about us. It was just kind of a whim. So we're glad it worked out.
0: It's funny because at the time, I didn't really know a lot about producers and stuff like that anyway. But my favorite band when I was younger was this band called Zebrahead. And Howard yeah. Benson did like their demo, right? So like even I think he it even says HB on my like Zebrahead cassette tape. You mentioned the your drummer, Joey. This is the first album you have with him before you had... Robin Diaz, who I met when I was a little kid touring with Double Drive. Actually, he was in a band called Closure. Yeah, and he had also done the drum tracks for the Trapped album. That's right. And he got me a job with TVT Records temporarily.
2: TVT, that's right. Closure was on TVT, right? Yeah, Um, yeah, Robin Diaz. Yeah, he came in. He did our first, second, and third records. And same thing. We met him in Vancouver, we were trying to find a drummer to do tracks and he was in Vancouver writing stuff with uh, for foreclosure. I think at that time and that was, this was like 2000 maybe. And he came into the studio and we, I think we just threw him on drums and he was an amazing drummer. I'm really like, this guy's sick. And he was just, this, this, uh, this little, uh, he was kind of a little kid from Southern California and uh, he had so much energy; he was just crazy, uh, and you can hear it on the records. But yeah, Rob Diaz.
0: So was yep. that transition to like a a drummer that was more so going to be like you know a an inclusive member of the band? Did that really play any part into the, the songwriting process, or was it just business as usual, just a different guy behind the?
2: Um, no, I mean it was nice to have because I mean we went through some different drummers. Brent Fitz played with us from on the Gasoline record he left to go play with alice cooper now he's in slash um but yeah brent toured with us for i don't know you know a couple of years what a great guy too i mean we're still friends but unfortunately he um he went off to work with alice cooper uh so when we brought joe in on the third record we really wanted to get a drum that we could keep (laughs) (laughs) keep and so uh we're hoping Joe would stay around stick around for the long haul. So he has, but yeah, it's nice to work with a guy that, you know, is in the band. He can put his, his, his input in and, you know, and you know now, now when I write songs, I'll usually send Joe the stuff first. It's nice to be able to do that where before I would have to build the drum stuff myself at home, which uh, it's nice. Now we have like a real band.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I want to go through some of the the songs on the album. Um, It opens with Low Life, which we talked about was such a a big hit for you and a staple of the set. But Low Life is also the theme song for SummerSlam 2011 that I watched on tour (laughs) with my best friend Rick. And uh, CM Punk wins and loses the WWE Championship. But you guys have done a lot of, uh, or maybe he doesn't win. He definitely wins his match and then I'll... And then Kevin Nash comes and power bombs him. I'll give you the details of SummerSlam 2011 a different time. But are you guys big wrestling fans? Because you're, you have a lot of songs that are involved with WWE.
2: We are. I mean, I grew up in like the, like way before. Like it's funny because people are like, oh, you know, back in the day when it was like The Rock. And we're like, well, no, no. I grew up like Andre the Giant, you know, Hulkamania, The Barbershop. So it was like, I think it was on Saturday night or something, and it was always like some, it'd be like, you know, Jimmy it's like Jimmy Snuka, you know, or Coco Beware, all these, I mean, and then it'd be like versus Joe Smith, and the guy, everybody booing him, and and then, you know you're like he's gonna lose, so back then it was always like this super guy would come out to the, it's amazing, you know, music, and then the other guy would come out and he'd just get, he'd just get his ass kicked. But that was I always feel like that was the classic when it was called WWF before they had to change it to W that's how you know old people how old people are when they say WWF. But yeah, big fans we were growing up. So anything we could do with wrestling, we were we were like 100 percent What do we gotta do? I think it's is it Jim Jimmy Johnson? Who's it? The guy over there does all the
0: Jim Johnson was the guy during the time yeah. you were doing stuff, yeah. Right, yeah. So worked with him a lot. Well, that's really cool, because I know you covered uh, Deadly Game, which was the... I don't know what you guys did it for, but I know it was... The original Deadly Game is the theme song for Survivor Series 98, which is like the Rock's big moment where he wins the title and turns on McFoley. And you cover Vince McMahon's theme song, which is probably the greatest wrestling theme song of all time. So those are both two Jim Johnson classics.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, when we heard about... um no chance in hell that was like we were pretty excited and it was it was interesting because we both songs too uh we had to figure out how we were going to make them like that's the hardest part you get in the studio and you're like well how are we going to make it sound like theory of a dead man because you can't just copy it especially like the way it was done was so different we, we listened we're like okay no we gotta do something different than this but like i had to rap right no chance that's what you got you know, but uh, so it was, a little, it was a little odd when we started, but once we kind of kind of finangled it in the studio, it really, like, I'm so proud of those songs. It turned out so well. I just love how they turned out. And Jim Johnson too, like he, like you couldn't change anything. You couldn't change a word. Like you couldn't change any chords, nothing. Like he wanted it to be specific. Had a, so we were a little nervous that we had to deliver something that we were hoping he wouldn't be like, nope, sorry guys, you went too far or something. So. It, it, was, uh, it was great that, you know, we, we handed it in and, and they were like, this is fantastic. So it's a pat on the back to us.
0: <laughs> that's cool that you got to work with Jim Johnson directly, though. I didn't know that. The, I figured it was, you know, kind of a thing where they assign you the song, or whatever, and you send it in. And then that's that's it. So you getting to actually work with him is pretty cool. Full circle, Howard Benson produced Motorhead's cover of Enter Sandman for the ECW soundtrack <laughs> with Zebrahead as the backing band.
2: That's right. He got to work with Motorhead. We got we have him on a podcast coming up pretty soon, too. So he talks a little bit about Lemmy, working with Lemmy. And what's that
0: like? You know, you're really tall, though. You could have been a wrestler. Did you ever think about that? Well, I, I I did notice, too, that in the music videos, probably to hide how tall you are, you do like this like split leg stance. The low-light video is cool, though, where you're playing in like the trailer.
2: Nah, that was awesome. Yeah, we uh, I don't think we filmed that in Tallahassee. Was it Jacksonville? But Donald Logue is the the low-life character in it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say Commissioner Gordon is uh, up front.
2: That's right. Yeah. Um, so it was really cool that we got him in the video. And uh, so they really blew the thing up at the end. And, of course, we only had one shot. And they're like, we're going to blow this thing up. So you guys have to be past this mark on the ground before we blow it. We only got one shot. So don't flinch. Don't look back don't do anything. And we're like, okay. And then they blew it. And it was just like, you know, out of a movie, it was like burning hot and you couldn't flinch and we're had to walk like slow-mo. Like it was all cool. And uh, the explosion was way bigger than they expected. And it blew out uh, windows and uh, people's houses. And one guy got uh, like ricochet. He got like call uh, whatchamacallit, like in his arm, his arm was bleeding. One of the crew guys um and the fire department had to come and put it out it was crazy we're, we're like is this legal <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's crazy because i i th- assumed it was like a green screen thing but you're really walking away from yeah. an exploding trailer
2: it was all real yeah it was <laughs> crazy that's back then that's what they used to do they're like oh no <laughs> we'll just light this sucker up <laughs> i couldn't believe it like they, they blew it. i think they used propane or something i can't remember but yeah they had full pyro guys there blowing stuff up but I think what happened was uh, they had, you know, they have to hire some sort of fire person. I can't remember what they called them. You know, they have to come in and watch and make sure everything's safe. Yeah. And they had the fire hose ready, but something happened and it got jammed and they couldn't turn it on. So the fire was like, after it blew up, there's this (laughs) massive fire and they were afraid it was going to spread to houses. So the fire department came and, it out it was it was odd was there some behind the scenes somewhere about that it's got to be
0: well bitch came back is the next song on the album and you already kind of touched on this which i'm actually grateful for because i was like you know how i know tyler's a rock star because i couldn't even casually say to my friends that the bitch came back and still like have friends but you can sing it in a song to an audience and people like it but it's a cool song it's got the horns on it that's cool
2: yeah, that was great. Um, shoot, I can't remember the guy's name. Jerry Hay. Yeah, he brought a quartet in or whatever, but but he's like a famous horns guy in, in L.A. here. He's a session guy that does like all the movies and TV shows. And so it was pretty cool, and I actually kept, when they were done, I actually he, I got his, um, all his, the, the, the notation of the whole song. It says, Bitch Came Back. I got it framed. It's pretty, the irony in it. Someone's actually playing horns to the <laughs> song. But yeah, we really thought we would be cool to do it up. It's almost a, yeah, it's a bit of an ironic twist too. And that's kind of something we were kind of, I don't say famous for, but kind of really enjoyed doing was having a little bit of that tongue in cheek where if I was talking about something uh, where I seemed like I was very bitter and angry. We had to put a little bit of humor on it, a little bit of a twist, whether it was musical or, and whatnot, just to let people know that I wasn't just this miserable person all the time. It's like, no, 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 we're just having fun.
0: Well, I feel like that's like a, yeah, a pretty common theme with your lyrics. There's what, hate my life. You kind of do that a lot. Yeah. Um, right. Even this, you know, low life isn't too different from that. Well, that, that was the thing that I was going to ask you too. Um, I guess I'll skip to that is low life. And um, what's another one? The truth is the title track, you know, I know they're yeah. co-written with uh, the Nehigh Fox herself. But they seem like they're like <laughs> songs that are deprecating you. And I, I feel like that's, I don't know what was, I think that's uh, ironic that all the songs that are written by this other person that is close to you in your life, they're all kind of saying that you're shitty. So what were you doing that was <laughs> that was making her be like, hey, I wrote this. You know what it made me think of? Do you know on Saturday Night Live where they do Weekend Update and um, yeah. Michael Shea will write jokes for Colin Jost and not tell him that's about right. it? I feel like that's a what this racist. is. Yeah, yeah. The Christine <laughs> wrote the song. Like, hey, don't read. Really, just go in, in there and uh, crank out these lyrics. And as you're going through, you're like, I'm a low life. I'm a, I lied about everything. What's going on? Well, I mean, our, our
2: process is usually, you know, like I will, I'll have an idea, and then I'll I'll, I'll say, hey, you want to help me with this idea? Sometimes we'll sit down and write a song together. But yeah, I remember "Low Life." I think was something where. I had the low life idea and uh, and then she came in and really brought it to the next level. (laughs) But yeah. Yeah. You usually it works better if like the singer has the idea than someone coming in. But yeah, I remember um, because bitch came back. That was with Kara DeGuardi. Uh, I remember I showed her that song and she was like, you are a sick fuck. (laughs) (laughs) But she dug it. She uh, I think that's also maybe kind of saves me in a sense where when you co-write songs with women you know that maybe are a bit of a jab it it's it's almost like i have a little bit of a defense like it's okay i wrote it with carrie diaguardi so we're all good right (laughs) (laughs) or with christine you know it's it's fine yeah the truth is like that one's yeah that one's pretty that one's pretty hard hitting but um it's a lot a lot of breakup stuff i like truth is yeah
0: Well, that's what I was thinking about with Bitch Came Back is like, oh, well, Kara helped you write it. So, like, it's interesting that she's the one, you know, that was like green lighting a song like that. But all the songs that she contributes to on here, Bitch Came Back, Hurricane and Gentleman, all have like an extra aspect. So Gentleman and Bitch Came Back have the horns. Hurricane has like the string arrangement and then on right. uh, Scars and Souvenirs, Not Meant to Be also has the strings. So is that like a Kara thing or is just coincidental that all those songs have those extra elements?
2: Coincidental, I right. guess. Yeah.
0: No, she doesn't,
2: uh, at least with our stuff, I know she's, I mean, she's a she's a good producer too. She can go as far as you want her, want her to go on songs. But our relationship is pretty much like, we, we, I'll go. It's, it's for me. It's as short as possible. And she's so good with lyrics and so quick. But it's um, same with Christine. Just so fast that um, it's usually a very short writing session. And it's like, all right, great. And then I just go and I I take it and then I make a demo and then we kind of do the rest on our on our own. But yeah, I don't think I've ever really hit up Kara kind of after the fact and say, what do you think this song needs? but I'm sure there's artists that do, and she's really good at that as well. Um, and honestly, it's, it's usually um, something as simple as a uh, recorder on my phone or an dictaphone. phone um, with Christine, usually because she lives close to me, she'll come over and we'll actually track something with like, a, like a drum machine or, or guitars or something. And, and uh but yeah, with Kara, it's usually I don't send her anything until it's done. I'll, I'll send her, um, I remember not meant to be. I think it was just acoustic guitar and shaker. <laughs> and so uh, I remember she's like, Do you ever finish that song? I was like, Yeah. I sent it to her and she's like, Dude, this is a hit. I'm like, Is it? And I don't know. I didn't really know. I didn't, uh, the label thought it was. Uh, and they were all correct. They were all right. So <laughs> it was a hit. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's maybe my process. I like to kind of, do everything myself and then show everybody and if people have input then that's great but yeah i i don't usually have people just like continuously sit in and and offer up input i think sometimes it's like just let me do my thing
0: (laughs) (laughs) well then so is it your idea to add these horns and string arrangements like who's who's bringing those ideas to the table
2: on these i can't remember but uh, probably Um, it's hard to say. I don't want to take credit away for, in case it was somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, fair enough. Yeah, it could have been someone from the band. Could have been Howard.
0: Uh you do Out of My Head with Brett James, who's kind of got more of like a country pop. Country background. guy. Yeah. yeah. He did Jesus Take the Wheel, Carrie Underwood. My yeah vegan used, comrade.
2: Um, he's written some big hit. That out of my head was actually something I think I think that was his idea. I went down there and it was a very fast session. to two acoustic guitars and I think he just started singing something. I think he started singing the yay yayes or something. And then he's like, You wanna go grab some food? I'm like, Yeah sure and we went and grabbed Mexican food and had a couple of beers and he's like, Alright, see you later and that was it. Same thing, I just took the I think it was just a dictaphone. Recorded on a dictaphone or on my phone and I was I took that home and downloaded it and that was it. But those are the greatest sessions. Those are, I do, I've do. i done quite a few of those Nashville sessions. and Sometimes people want to track the whole thing right there. They put a mic in front of your face. And I'm like, right, like man, let's just put it on my phone and I'll just leave. Because <laughs> I, I think sometimes they want to kind of own it so then they can do it up and make it sound like, like a finish. and mix it and everything and make it sound great. And then they try to like take it to the label behind your back. And you're like, I heard the song you did with so-and-so. I'm like, how'd you hear that? (laughs) Oh, I got sent to me. I'm like, well, well. Yeah, I didn't really like that song. (laughs) (laughs) So it's another one of those controlling things I do, I guess. I I like to have the song. And if I want to track it, I will, kind of thing. As a songwriter, too, you're, you're always, it doesn't matter how many hits you've had, or you're always looking for the next one, right? So, I mean, Bad Girlfriend was a big hit for us. And so you're always looking for the next bad girl from the had RX, which was, you know, um, ironically, our biggest song ever. And that came out on our sixth album. So for us, it's. Uh, we're kind of proud that we're able to still, after all these years, write a song and that still have somehow be our biggest song. It's uh, it, it kind of motivates me as a songwriter. I'd be like, all right, you still got it. You can still <laughs> you can still maybe you still got another one in you somewhere. I don't know. So because there's definitely days as a songwriter where you're like, I don't know, I suck. I don't know. I quit. Who knows?
0: Well, I also feel like when you have a big hit like Rx or Bad Girlfriend, you're probably like, well, I can't replicate this. Like, I, it's too big. Yeah. I've I've set the bar too high as far as success goes. And um, then it probably is stressful. That's what I was thinking about this album is that I wonder what kind of you know pressure that put on you to be like, I don't think I have another bad girlfriend. Like, I just. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's true. And it, the thing is, the, the big struggle as a band that has success is, uh, you know, trying to please uh, the fans. Once you become successful, the fans want another bad girlfriend. Uh, but, you know, if you give it to them, it, it will never actually be anywhere near as good because right. it's, it's, you know, it's just like when you. It's like when you break up with someone, usually you go date someone that looks completely different. <laughs> it's like that's almost the RX. It's almost like I broke up with a brunette and now I'm dating a blonde. But the RX is such a different song than Bad Girlfriend. And now it's like, well, we can never do another RX. So it's what will be the next song from us? I don't know. It's interesting. Maybe it will be something like the first record. Who knows?
0: Speaking of the first record, Just kind of skip just because it's my favorite song. Uh, Drag Me to Hell is the sickest song on here. You guys, I don't know if you've ever played that live, but it's definitely by far the coolest track because it's so hard-rocking, you know. Not that the other songs don't have those hard-rock elements, but that one is just, like, ass-kicking, for real.
2: Yeah. I'm trying to think. I wrote that about somebody. I just can't remember who I wrote it about. Huh. I have to think about it, but he yeah, has definitely wrote, written about somebody, someone that pissed me off. A <laughs> gentleman we used to do live. That was a fun one live because I love the guitar solo. Um,
0: yeah, that's actually kinda, the the coolest lead on the record for sure.
2: Yeah, it's got like a rockabilly thing on there. So I remember we used to play that live, but uh, it's tough when you have so many records. And uh, like I said, "Scars and Souvenirs." I I think we still do six songs off that album every night. So it's like. It's tough. Almost half the set is from one record. But um, the last Canadian tour we did, we played two songs from our first album and it felt, it felt fun. It felt good to do, especially another came between us. I still like playing that song. It's, I remember us I putting that together in my basement. So it's kind of one of those good nostalgia memories, kind of thing
0: why is it south carolina that is the destination that you're running back and forth uh, other than (laughs) that being where i live
2: i don't know man from here to south carolina i guess because i mean we grew up in vancouver so vancouver to south carolina i think it just meant that it was a really long distance so i think it just i'm trying to think of somewhere that was really far away south carolina just sounded like it really rolled off the tongue we were into this kind of Southern Rock thing back then where a lot of Leonard Skinner, Allman Brothers, CCR. So I think that was just kind of, for us, I'm like, well, South, it's got South it's in it, so.
0: Even the way you say it has that drawl like you're from here. Yeah, that's right. The truth is... That you kind of mentioned earlier is very mean <laughs> and i'm not sure who yeah. i'm supposed to be rooting for in the song you or the subject matter <laughs> uh because you both sound like terrible people but why is that the song that you chose to name the record after
2: i think that, that was so that would have been our first record where we actually named the album after a song right and i think after that we've named every album after a song i think i don't know i think you know i was in a weird place like writing that record i was going through a divorce so i was just in this gross bitter place confused so i think that maybe was more encapsulated kind of how i felt so i really felt like the truth is i lied about everything like i don't know it was almost like a an f u or something like that the record was really just a, a statement
0: the uh, the closing song on the regular album, We Were Men, sounds like it's yeah. a pitch to like the military. Was was that the yeah. idea? Were you going to like do a, or did it happen? Was that used in some sort of campaign?
2: Oh, no, it wasn't a pitch, um, but it was a song for military. That was actually the first song I think I ever wrote that was completely about something that I had no perspective of. So it was, it was about PTSD. And I think that was when I really started kind of, kind of seeing that I can actually write about whatever I want kind of thing, rather than just writing from one kind of a skewed perspective of being a, a miserable guy, <laughs> you know? So, so we were men was just about guys coming back from, you know, overseas or girls and, and not being able to, you know, go back to normal life. So um, yeah, I was a little nervous about releasing that, having that, because I was afraid of having, some sort of backlash, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I think some people liked it. I, I love that song. I, I think it's such a great uh, song. I love it. just fits so perfectly at the end of the record. I think it was kind of built to be put. We need a great song to end the record. That was back when bands used to do that.
0: No, I do. I, it feels very conclusionary and it has that cool, like dissonance at the beginning of the song that makes it sound very like epic. So uh, I do think that's cool. And it's like kind of on that, teeter-totter of it's not quite a ballad but it's not uh you know a fast-paced song so it still hits heavily but without being too soft
2: yeah it's got a, it's got definitely that kind of a metallica vibe to it i think maybe i was trying to go for it was just like kind of a, a dirty slow kind of feel but uh which we we just don't do enough of anymore
0: See, I don't think you do enough songs like Drag Me to Hell enough anymore. That's what I mean. Uh, yeah. I guess That's Savages has some some hard rockers on there too, but I, I want an album full of just the the breakneck riffy songs.
2: Um, Villain was written afterwards. So I think Villain was one of those tracks I wrote after the record was done. And then so we were able to... The label always wanted B-sides back then. They wanted... Because mm-hmm. especially Roadrunner, where they did a lot of Japanese releases, especially with metal. So they're obsessed and Ron Byrne was obsessed with B sides. It's just like, yeah, man, so where are these B sides, man? Where are these B sides? We're like, who gives a shit? Who cares? God, why are we so obsessed with releasing songs that, if they're so good, <laughs> when they've been on the record? So, uh but yeah, villain. I love villain. It's just it's a cool little swing thing to it. And I think we actually might have tracked that. We tracked it with Mike Fraser in Vancouver, Mike Fraser, he's ACDC, awesome dude, Joe Saturani. Um, and I think we might have done it the same time we did one of the uh, WWE tracks, maybe no chance because we did no chance or uh, we did one of them with Mike Fraser, I'm pretty sure. It might have been the same time. Who knows? There's a tidbit for you.
0: Well, speaking of WWE, I, I buried the lead on this too. So, Head Above Water, is with my man from the X's whose name I can't think of right now. What's his name? Scott Stevens. Scott Stevens. The X's, of course, did Survivor Series 2004's theme song, Ugly. So did you guys just talk about being wrestling theme song guys the whole time? No.
2: Well, Scott, we, so we knew, I knew Scott from the X's. So um, we toured with the X's when we went out on this Nokia something tour. It was us, Saliva. The X's, I'm pretty sure that's the tour. Is that the right tour?
0: Saliva are also WWE soundtrack Hall of Famers. So you guys should have just been doing these wrestling theme songs for the whole tour.
2: (laughs) There's so many. Every band we tour with is a wrestling song. No, I think it was actually the Breaking Ben tour. I think it was Us, Sexies, and Breaking Benjamin. I think that was it. Uh, We met him on that tour. I think that was right around then. It's right around 2005. So, uh, you know, we became friends with those guys. And then I think the X's broke up. Um, so Scott was becoming a songwriter. So I remember he hit, hit me up and was like, hey, you want to write a song together? I'm like, sure. So he came over. I think it was whatever. It was 2008, 2009. He came to my house and we just. And it was, he had the idea head above water. So we just jammed it and I downloaded it and sent it to him. And uh, yeah, he's still kicking ass. He's still, that's all he does now. He's a songwriter. He's writing a lot of songs.
0: What is something that you would have done differently with this album, kind of looking back 10 years later?
2: It was tough. Like I said back then, everything was a machine. It was like nonstop. But what would I have done differently? Maybe taking more time and seeing if we would have done something maybe a little different Um But other than that, like, I really am one of those guys that accepts things for what they are. I really feel like I am where I am because of the way everything turned out. So I don't really reminisce too much about things that could have been different, you know.
0: That's actually my favorite thing about Bitch Came Back is that you say, the song is called Bitch Came Back. You say fucking in it, but then there's also a time where you say (laughs) freaking.
2: Frickin', right, which is our, our ex is frick. Yeah, um, I don't know. I always liked frick. I don't know why.
0: Well, I think saying non profanity is way funny. Like I think saying frickin' is really cool. Like I wish the whole song was frickin' and the frick came back or something. Like that would make it even that that would be my thing that I would have done differently for you, is made the whole song just the word frick.
2: Well, yeah, you know, it's crazy now that we look back because we we would fight to keep the curse words in. I remember having a, a heated conversation with our A&R guy because he said we had to take the, the swear words out of some song. And we said, nope. They're staying in. And he was so angry that we wouldn't do it. But we're like, like... But I think it was more because of radio or it was because the label knew that Walmart, for example, wouldn't carry the record if it had this much profanity on it. And now that we look back, we're like, yeah, but now it's all streaming and it don't matter so mm. it's great that we stuck to our guns because now it's like imagine if we changed all those fucks to fricks and imagine all those shits to whatever and it's like yeah we would have this weird record <laughs> where because we changed it all because for walmart and now it's like there's no more records anymore it's all streaming they're just doing to jobs like we we're doing ours.
0: Thanks to Tyler from Theory of a Dead Man for taking this look back on The Truth Is 10 Years Later. Tyler has a podcast with Dean from Theory called Band Meeting every other week where they talk to musicians, athletes, and comedians about any and everything. Maybe they'll have me on to talk about wrestling theme songs. But while I wait for that invite, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Follow me on Instagram at Pod to keep up with what's frickin' and frackin' and come back every Wednesday for a brand new episode. I'm Ryan Rainbow. this is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best thing to come up with. Bye! This is Rick Jimenez of the Stiff Shots Podcast Network and host of Thrasher Slashers and the Road to WrestleMania, which airs every single Monday where myself and a guest discuss a movie and an album of their choice in the WrestleMania of the same year. This week, my guest will be subterfuge guitar player and jiu-jitsu warrior and instructor, Ed Lee. And we're talking about 2014 with Bane's final album, Don't Wait Up, the weirdo horror movie, The Duke and the culmination of the Yes Movement at the Straight Edge Edition of WrestleMania. Subscribe on whatever platform you get your Stiff Josh podcast network shows at and get
2: smashed in the face at a gas station with a can of Red Bull with Thrasher Slashers on the Road to WrestleMania.